ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Second, or sorry, First Thessalonians. We're going to pick back up in our study of First Thessalonians. We kind of took a break uh, for Holy Week and Good Friday and Resurrection. Um, but we're going to be jumping back into the study here. You know, First Thessalonians has a pretty broad scope. By the time we're in, you know, the, the fifth chapter, we're talking about the return of Jesus. We're talking about the dead in Christ rising. We're talking about the rapture. We're talking about meeting in the clouds. Um, but First Thessalonians 4 has got some real high spiritual ideas and then some real practical down to the dirt of it instructions. And uh, that's what we found out in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, when we started it a little while back, we, we found out that he, he got very practical with them. He said, you're doing well, but I want you to excel still more. And he encouraged them to abandon any sexual immorality, told them how to live, told them not to live like the Gentiles, said there's a better way out there for you. There's a way that God's created. And, uh, you know, sometimes... Uh, that's one of the beauties of, of going through this book verse by verse. It's, it's one of the beauties of going through a book like this is that you don't avoid anything. And I, I'll tell you the truth is a lot of these practical issues so often get relegated to um, maybe a seminar or a home group study or something, but we don't really talk about it in a church service. And that's just not right. I mean, this we should be able to to preach the word in season and out, right? And uh, so, you know, we, we went through that, and then the next thing we come across is also not the coolest topic in the world. It's, it's, it's starts talking about working and, and working with your hands and, and doing something with what God gave you. And, you know, a lot of times that's, you know, what we're about to read isn't on people's refrigerators, when someone asks you what your favorite verse is, you don't, you don't say, my favorite verse is when the Bible told me to mind my own business. <laughs> well, maybe it is, but usually when we say that, we're applying it to someone else, right? <laughs> very, very few times do I say mind my own business. Quite often you say, mind your own business, right? Uh, you may not know that the phrase mind your own business came from the Bible. Did you know that? That's a Bible phrase. We're about to read it. Now, we're going to read it in the New American Standard, so it says it a little differently. But out of the original King James, mind your own business. Just mind your business. That's a Bible thing. Praise the Lord, some of you feel liberated already. Years of saying that suddenly sounds holy. <laughs> but might I encourage you with these words? That we can either receive the word as a disciple or you can receive the word as a Pharisee. Your choice. Disciples say, how does this apply to me? Pharisees say, how does this apply to Leah? Right? That's what a Pharisee says. Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like them. I ho oh boy, they better be hearing this because they need this. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 9. And Levi, you can probably mute those loops. And I don't know if there's a little buzz left. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's an amazing thought. And that, that is um, not something that's across the board. Because after Paul writes this, he's going to write to other churches to love one another. He's, uh, John's going to write to churches that we should love one another. And in fact, spend a lot of time on it. So he's not saying nobody needs teaching on love. He's saying you guys are doing a good job. And the reason you're doing a good job is not because, you know, that's just your favorite thing. The reason you're doing well at loving one another is because the Holy Spirit's been teaching you how to do it. You know, it's the Holy Spirit that teaches us how to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit, right? Even tonight, I get the honor of, of being a teacher tonight, but it is the Holy Spirit that's doing the real teaching, right? So the Holy Spirit being our teacher, he'll, you know, there are practical things we can say about, about how to best communicate love and, and how to walk in love and how to guard yourself against um, the, the things that steal that love. But, but the truth of the matter is there's only one person that can teach you how to love like Jesus, and that's the Holy Spirit. This church was doing well at loving one another. As to the love of the brethren, I don't have any need to write anything else to you because you're doing well. The Holy Spirit's taught you how to do it. That, that, that's quite encouraging. You, it's, you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Now, this is the second time that he said, excel still more. We've said this before, but when you first got born again, God didn't give you the full playbook of all the things you needed to fix. Or all the things you needed to do better because it would have been overwhelming. But one of the beautiful things about being alive is growing. If you're growing, you're alive. If you're alive, you're going to grow, right? So you, you yourselves have realized that as you grow in the Lord, you learn how to excel still more. You learn that I've been, I mean, it's not like God goes back and says you've been doing it all, wrong all along. And I think that's a lot of times how we receive correction. If you receive it with a wrong mindset, then anytime you're corrected by somebody or by the Lord himself, you take it as an indictment on the past, right? Like, oh, I guess I've been doing it wrong all along. This doesn't mean you've been doing it wrong. It just means you can excel still more. There's, there's more. As, as one of my childhood favorite bands said, there's a higher place to go. Right? And, and that's an inside joke to some of you Petra fans. But that, that, that's the truth of, of being a believer is there's always higher, there's always further, there's always deeper. And so as you grow in Christ, you know, there are questions that you ask. And it no longer is it a question of is this sinful or is it not sinful. The question more becomes is this profitable or is it not profitable. Uh, how does this enable me to run my race and run the race that God has set before me? Is this what I'm meant to be spending my life on? And so here he's saying excel still more. Here are some areas you're doing well, but here are some areas you still can improve. Now, the heart of a disciple, listen, we're, remember, we've talked about this on Sundays, about moving out of a slavery mindset, about moving out of an abused child mindset, and into a mindset of someone that is unconditionally loved by the Father. When you know you're unconditionally loved by the Father, discipline does not hurt. 
Now, the Bible says it doesn't feel good at the moment, but discipline is not rejection. Discipline is not condemnation. Discipline is love. Discipline is a father who says, you can go further. So it's important that when we hear him correct us, if we are truly sons and daughters, the book of Hebrews says, if you're, if you're legitimate children, then you embrace the correction. You know, the, 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 you know back in the Old Testament, it says that, that this reproof, this correction is proof, this discipline is proof of the Father's delight in us. So the fact that Jesus loves us enough to say there's, you can do better, is, it does not mean you're, you're bad. It just means there's better. And I hope that we can embrace that. And every day of my life in Christ, um, I shouldn't say every day, but every season of my life in Christ, God's revealed things and says, all right, that was good for them. But you're, you've come to a different place. You've come to a higher place. And, and now I want to show you a better way. I want to show you a higher way. And the important thing is in doing that, that you realize that that's what God is speaking to you. And there are some things that you just straight out know are not bad for somebody else, but for you, God's calling you to a higher place. So you can't get all judgmental and say, well, I don't watch TV anymore. I made that decision yesterday, so you can't watch TV anymore. Well, <laughs> now you've had a whole day of not watching TV and you decide no one can watch TV. Well, that might be the case, and I think we'd all be better off if we didn't watch TV, but you can't go applying those standards to everyone else, right? You got to go by the standard that God's giving you, and, and there are hard and fast standards in the Bible, clear standards, but there are other things that are, that are uh, a matter of maturity and a matter of growth. Now, what he's about to say here is not really a matter of gray. It's, it's pretty black and white, but it's an area they haven't mastered yet. And I want you to see what he says. He says, I want you to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we've commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Once again, not really a run around the church kind of section of scripture, is it? Right, but it is good. It's, 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 not the, it's not the Instagram quote that you put over a beautiful picture of mountains and, and put this scripture on it. it. It sometimes is a little tough for us to get excited, but this is the way we were created. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Have, have any of you ever thought that that was a, a good ambition? Like this, is, this should be something you aim for, to lead a quiet life? We don't talk about this much, but you'd be surprised how many times that shows up in Scripture. How many times in the New Testament we are urged to lead a quiet life? In fact, it says that we're to pray for those in government, not that our political party gets in, but we're to pray... For all of those in authority that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. How often does that get talked about? I admit, I don't talk about it a lot. And really, if you were to ask most Christians and not quote the scripture first, but just ask them, does God want you to lead a quiet life? Most of them would say, I don't think so. Because we don't understand what we mean by quiet life. When we think of quiet life, we think, well, I'm not supposed to touch anybody else's life. I'm not supposed to 
to be bold. I'm not supposed to be, you know, step out and, and preach. That's not what he's talking about for quiet life. What he's talking about in a quiet life is, is a life that is not full of a, a bunch of, you know, of you darting here and there, panicking and trying to figure out how to do things. Quiet life is not a busybody. It's not sticking your nose in everybody else's business. A quiet life is saying, I know what I'm called to do and I'm going to do it well. And I'm going to look first to the things that God has called me to. It's a rested life. It's a life of peace. And it's a life where you say, I know that I'm meant to work with what God's put in front of me, and I will first put my hand to that. And he really does. We're going to read some other scriptures, but it does relate to how you relate to everybody else. When people say, mind your own business, and it's, it's actually from scripture, it's not completely taking it out of context because we should not be as, and this is a scriptural term, busybodies that obsess over everybody else's business. Do you know I find the people that obsess over everybody else's business are the ones who don't have enough to do with their own hands. Right? Now, in Paul's day, it was not quite like our day, where our day, you might, it's not uncommon for both, uh, uh, both heads of the household, both the, the, uh, both the husband and the wife to be at work. That's not uncommon. In Paul's day, almost always the women were at home. And so he urges the women, find something to do. Because if you just sit at home doing nothing, you'll go nuts. And you'll start getting your nose in other people's lives and causing trouble. Now, I find in 2017, that's not just women. That's all of us. The roles have changed a bit, right? Now, you still have women who stay at home while the man goes to work. But that's not always the case. Sometimes both are working. Sometimes it's the man who stays at home. Either way, you got to find something to do with your hands. And it's not just anything random. God will put something in your path. The Bible says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared before, for us beforehand that we might walk in them. So God has given you something to do. And if you're not doing it and you're idle... Look up the word idle in the Bible. See how many times it pops up and see if it's ever used in a good way. It's not. Read the book of Proverbs and read about the sluggard. Read about the idle man. Read about the guy who, who decides to sleep in and someone says, you probably should wake up. And he says, oh, there's a lion in the streets. I better stay in bed. God did not create us for this. Now, let's just read this again. And I want us to see it from his perspective. Make it your ambition. I mean, I think if we went down to the youth group right now and we said, tell me your goals in life. And some teenager said, my goal in life is to lead a quiet life. We'd say, something's wrong with this kid. This kid needs to get fired up. This is not a good goal in life. But there's a scripture here that just said that should be a goal in life. We should know that leading a quiet life does not mean a life where you turn into a hermit. And you're not touching lives for Jesus. It's quite the opposite. Because at the end of the verse, he's saying, this is affecting how outsiders see us. Attend to your own business. Mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as we commanded you. I want to read you something from 2 Thessalonians, which will probably just hammer it in even further. Second Thessalonians 3. 
Verse 6 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we didn't have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. Either, for we hear some of you among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, I mean, honestly, some people would be surprised that I'm reading the scripture right now. This just sounds like a rant on Facebook. But this is out of the scripture. The Holy Spirit wrote this. You know, the Holy Spirit, God wrote this. This is a powerful thought. So I think anything God thinks is important for us, it's important enough to put in Scripture, we should treat just as real as when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's just as real to me. Because he created us for something. And here's the great thing, is that whatever the enemy stole, God has restored. God is restoring through Jesus Christ. So we look around at the world, it's still under a curse. But Jesus died so that we would be redeemed, and one day even the earth itself will be redeemed. He is creating a new heaven and a new earth. Part of the curse was not that we'd have to work. We were always made to work. Part of the curse was that our work would be frustrating, toilsome, and hard. Right? It's not, the curse was not that you have to work. Work was there before the curse was there. Work was there before, before the spouse was there. Which is a good lesson. Any young, any young ladies, if I could go down to the youth group right now and tell them, notice that God put Adam to work before he gave him a wife. That's a good pattern in life, too. You want to get married? Make sure that man's got something to do. Make sure he's got a job, right? <laughs> That's just practical. <laughs> he calls it unruly, undisciplined. And that might be hard for somebody to hear. I think it's especially hard for someone to say, if he, if he doesn't work, don't let him eat. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that the apostles are going to come by your house and take your food if you're not eating? No. The church at the time was one of the most efficient and progressive means of feeding the poor that the world had ever seen. The Bible tells us that not one of them did without. Not one of them had any need. And that was evidence of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God that nobody had a need in the early church. And the reason was those who had much made sure that they, they gave that to those who had little. Everybody had their needs met. But that system collapses if you get a bunch of people that just say, all right, well, you guys are feeding me? Cool. I'm going to sit around all day. So when he says, don't let him eat, he's not saying like you snatch a sandwich out of his mouth. He's saying these are people, we're making sure that there are people who are working hard and still are not able to meet needs. Or maybe they lost their job. You know, in the Bible, you may be surprised to learn this, probably not. But in the scripture, there were several uh, whole communities of Christians who lost their jobs because they confessed Jesus. 
Jesus talks to the Smyrnans in the book of Revelation and says, I know your deep poverty. If you looked up the word poverty in the Greek, there's more than one word for poverty. This word is abject, extreme poverty, almost homelessness. And Jesus says, but you're rich. Why were they so poor? It wasn't because they just started out poor. They just weren't doing too well. The economy was rough. The reason they had to go through that, that time where it was, it was real hard on them was because of persecution. Because in, in many of these pagan societies, if you were going to work in any type of field, you had to belong to a guild. So if you were a construction worker, you belonged to the construction guild. If you were a stone worker, the stone workers guild. And every guild had a patron god or goddess. So if you belong to this particular guild, you have to offer, you're expected to offer sacrifices, you're you're expected to honor the patron god or goddess. If you refuse to do that, you very likely were primed to get kicked out of the guild. And it's it's like today, there are certain uh, certain businesses, certain... um, types of industry where they won't hire anyone who doesn't work for a specific union. Well, it was like that in those days, only to the extreme, where you'd get blackballed. If you weren't part of the guild, no one would hire you. And these guys said, well, we, we can't pretend that, we're, we're gonna, that we love Athena. We can't pretend that we're going to sacrifice to Mars. We can't pretend these things because to do so would be to deny Christ. So we'd rather lose work then deny Jesus. So because of that, times were a bit difficult on them. Uh, We read in the book of Acts that a famine was going to come over the whole world. That was the prophet Agabus talking to the church in Antioch. He said, the word of the Lord is this, that there's going to be a famine over the whole known world, and uh, it's going to come on all of us. And then the church says, okay, we're going to take up an offering and send it to Judea. Have you ever wondered why they sent money to Judea? Well, we find out in the book of Hebrews that Judea was one of the first places hit with such persecution that people's homes and property were seized from them. So the rest of the churches started giving towards Judea to take care of their needs. The church was designed to take care of one another. Like a giant organism, when one hurts, we all hurt. But Paul's addressing somebody who might be on the list to get support, but is not working. You see, the church's way and God's way of taking care of people was to take care of the poor. You see it over and over throughout the New Testament. From Jesus to Paul to Peter, all throughout the the New Testament, you see the urging to take care of the poor. It's one of the last things that Paul said when he was leaving to be uh, taken off and, and he's saying his farewell to the churches. He says, I only urge you, make sure you take care of the poor. Make sure you do this. You know, these are some of the, the most important things that he said. But what he wasn't saying is that there should be a welfare state where someone is just not doing anything and dependent on everybody else to take care of them. So let me ask you a question. Practically, Lloyd Minster, in the last few years, we had a lot of guys in the oil industry, women too, a lot of people in the oil, oil industry that got hit when the economy dipped, people lost their jobs. So they lost that prime source of income. What should they do? Does that mean they're not working? 
What I saw, what I witnessed, and maybe what you witnessed as well, was I saw people that might have lost their job, but I saw them come and, and, and plow, the, plow the parking lot. I saw them come and build things for the church. I saw them go help widows and shovel the, these driveways and take care of this and take care of that. They may not have had a job that they used to have, but they put their hands to work. And God honors that. So there were people in the New Testament that might have lost their job, but they found something to do with their hands. They said, I may have lost what, what the prime source of income, but that's not my source. God is my source. But I will not allow them to take away from me what makes me uh, a created being in God's image. And one of the things that makes me in God's image was I was created to create. What's the first thing that God tells uh, uh, is, is these people that he created. In fact, let's look back in Genesis for a minute. Because I want you to see, and, and, and I know you know this, I want you to see it's not a curse to have to work. That's good. It's not a curse to work. It's a curse that your work is frustrating and laborsome and wearisome. That's the curse. And Jesus said, come to me, all who you are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Learn from me. I'll teach you how to live in a way where you can learn my rhythm and you can, you can abide in me. And, and it won't be constantly burning out and, 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 and sucking all the life out of you. In Genesis, verse 26, Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. God created a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. And there was the sixth day. Further on. When he forms Adam in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Further on, he tells Adam to tend the garden. He places him in the garden. He says, tend it, make it grow, make it better. And it's not until the curse that he says, with the sweat of your brow, thorns will come out of the earth. With great toil will you get, will you get something out of the ground. It's not until the curse that that happens. But before the curse, he is put in a garden and God says, I'm giving you the garden, now take care of it. That initial blessing was that Adam and Eve were supposed to go out into the world, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Subdue it. Take dominion and subdue it. 
What, are, what does it mean to subdue it? God gave them something beautiful, but something a little chaotic. Now, there's no chaos in God, right? Everything has order. But watch what, how do you, how do you, how do you subdue a wild garden? How do you subdue a, a wild place? You trim, you plant, you, 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 you harvest, you, you change it. God gives us the materials and says, now make something out of it. I've heard people say Adam and Eve were created to go through the earth splitting atoms. I mean, these guys, they, they were created to take the earth and expand the garden. God could have done all that himself and said, Adam and Eve, just chill. Just, just lie down for a while. Just enjoy it. But God knew that mankind would not be satisfied without doing what they were created to do. We were created to be like our creator. So you're not going to be satisfied if you're not doing something with your hands. That's just truth. I know whole groups of people that, that I, I, I've, known, I've known men and women alike who have lost their, their job but kept doing something with their hands and God blessed what was in their hands. I've also known people that haven't done anything. They just said, well, eh. Maybe something will come along later. And they grew frustrated. They grew hopeless. They weren't happy. They were, I mean, I've known people that retired and were frustrated all the time. But I've known retired people who may not have a nine to five job, but they're doing something. They're blessing people. They're helping people. When it may not be the same sort of hours they put in before because let's face it, your body's not what it was at age 25, but, you know, and I'm looking at the sky when I say that. Nobody's, I'm not making eye contact with anybody, but I've seen, I've, I mean, we, we, we lived across the street from a guy that we were convinced was an ex-farmer because of the way that, I mean, you'd see him out there every day taking care of his lawn, and he would take a hose, and he would hand pick a place just to water for a while. Then he'd move a few inches and he'd water that. We saw him trim the edges of the grass along the driveway with scissors. The man was obsessed. But he wasn't happy unless he was doing something. It sounds harsh in 2 Thessalonians. If a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. Or he should not eat. Once again, that's not saying you should go in this house, guy's house and raid his refrigerator. It's saying... Don't provide for a guy who's not willing to do something with his hands. Even if he's not making money, he should be doing something to help somebody. That's what he was created for. And that's love. God created us for this. So I want us to go back to that original thought in 1 Thessalonians that this is something that reflects God to outsiders. Peter said, Peter said we should be careful how we behave towards outsiders because they're going to slander us. And if they're going to slander us, we better not give them anything real to slander us about. That's just the reality. Peter says you need to be, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the thing that they slander you, they'll in the day of visitation glorify God. He says if anybody suffers as an evildoer because of something evil you did, there's no credit for that. 
But he says, if you suffer for doing right, if someone persecutes you or mistreats you for doing what is right, then it finds favor with God. So he's saying it's important how we behave. It's important how the world sees us. And what they see is that we're not lazy. We're not undisciplined. We're not unruly. Why? Because God gave us that that spirit that is not the spirit of timidity, but is the spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind, a disciplined mind. So I think, and I've seen this, we've seen this as you preach the gospel in different places, is that the gospel turns people into productive members of community. People who receive the gospel find it hard to be lazy because you want to be like your father. You find joy in creating. You find joy in working with your hands and working with your mind. You find joy in being just like him. God was pleased with what he created. He looked at it and said, this is good. That's the way we should be as well. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life. 2 Thessalonians 3, just reading that again. Once again, it's almost shocking that this is in the Bible (laughs) for some of us. And once again, I don't think this is the kind of thing that you go and just apply to other people. I think, first of all, we need to look at it and say, Lord, would you have, are you speaking to me through this? But it says, you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. (laughs) That sounds harsh. You stay away from the kind of person that leads an unruly life and doesn't hold to the tradition which you've received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought ought to follow our example. We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to do this, but in order to offer you a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give, this, give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Christ Jesus to work in quiet fashion. There he goes again. And eat your own bread. But as for you, brethren, don't grow weary of doing good. Wow. Now, if you're willing to believe that every time God gives a command, there's the grace that goes along with it to get it done. If you're willing to receive this as a word from God, because so often we receive practical advice like this as just a word, somebody's opinion. If I were to tell you this and not give you scripture for it, you'd say, well, that's just his opinion. But since we're hearing it from the word of God and you're willing to receive it as a word from God, then you must believe the word of God can create in us things that weren't there before. So the word of God can create, can I just admit, we've all been lazy at times. There's a lot of lazy people and I'm probably one of them at times. Maybe not lazy in the, in the sense that I, I'm referring to here, but you know what? There was a tendency in me that I saw all throughout my school life, which was to procrastinate things, to put them off. Well, I find out that God's not a procrastinator. He's a doer, and he's a finisher. So if I'm willing to receive this as a word from God, do you know what God will do in you? Even the areas where you say, I'm probably a little lazy, I'm probably a little procrastinator, I'm probably a little sluggish, his word is able to create something in you. There's an anointing that comes with it, which can cause you to be like him, no matter what you were like without him. 
No matter what you're like in your own strength, in his strength, I can do all things through Christ. Amen? Now, Paul said it was good. In fact, in another letter, he said, even Jesus told us that when we preach, we're supposed to make our living from the gospel. He said, the reason I didn't do it with you guys is because you guys needed an example. He said, we had the right to say, we're preaching. You should support us. But he, and he said, in another place, he said, there are other churches supporting us so that we can be here. But he said, we went out of our way to take a second job to work and preach at the same time just so you'd see what someone looks like who's working. You see, when Paul writes to Titus and he says, I got to tell you, Titus, you've heard, because Titus is, is sent to go pastor a church in Crete. He said, you've heard somebody say, one of their own poets says, Cretans are always lazy, they're liars, they're they're sluggish, they're, they're good for nothing. And, and you expect Paul to say, but you shouldn't believe bad things about the people you're about to pastor. But Paul says, this saying is true. So for this reason, you should reprove them soundly. That doesn't sound nice. And I, I, sometimes I wonder, what happened? I know eventually the Cretan church got their hands on that letter and said, what did you say about us? <laughs> but he says, reprove them soundly because if you, re, if you say, listen, I believe better for you. I believe God created you for more. Then the point of the matter is, we're no longer who we were, but we're now stepping into being who God made us to be. So the Cretans had to learn, guys, you're not defined by your culture. You're not defined. You may say everybody else in our culture is like this. Not anymore. Amen. You're in Christ now. Yeah. So don't worry about this. This may be, and we have to be aware of the cultural tendencies that are around us all the time, pulling us in a direction. You have to be aware of that. But you resist it and say, I've been called to a higher culture. That's why we, there's why there's encouragement, exhortation, reproof. That's why somebody gets up here and preaches, not to tell you something you've never heard before, but most of the time to remind you of something you already know. You're not like that. You're somebody bigger. You're, you're, you're in Christ now. God didn't make you that way. I was thinking about what Paul wrote to Timothy about widows. Because once again, they had a, marvelous system for taking care of widows. It's not like our society now where if you're a widow or if you're an elderly person who doesn't have any other means of income, the government has programs, there's money coming in. Uh, if you were a widow in, in, in the time that these scriptures were written, uh, it was a hard life. You literally did not have any means of income and you were forced to rely on other people to take care of you. And... Uh, one of the things that he says about widows, in fact, I, I, just since we're talking about it, we should read it because I think it, it'll shed some light on something very simple that I'm trying to get at, which is whatever God put in your hands, you can use. I'd like, to, I'd like us to escape the mindset that tells us that the only proper form of work is, is, is a job that somebody hired you for and pays you a paycheck 
once a month or once every two weeks. And I'd like us to get back to the thought that uh, this is not something, work is not synonymous with a job. Work is synonymous with what we were created for. It's who we are. We were created to create. We were created to build. We were created to give. We were created to supply needs. So in Ephesians, and you can look this up later, but Ephesians, he says, there's thieves. He says, the one who steals must steal no longer, but rather let him work with his hands, doing what is good so that he will have enough to share with the one who has need. That's the cure for the thief. It's not just to tell him, stop stealing. Let him work with his hands. Not just work with his hands. Let him work with his hands doing what is good so that he'll have enough to supply for somebody who has a need. Now listen, if you're reading this scripture and thinking it's wrong to ever depend on someone else's help, like I should never need help from anybody, then it wouldn't make any sense for the Bible to continually tell us to supply others' needs. Right? Because then we would just be causing them to sin. It's okay to need help. We all need help from time to time. We all need somebody to help us. But whether or not you're needing help from somebody else, we should all be putting our hands to use. We saw this in Vietnam. Michael and I, successful centers where they're taking drug addicts off the streets, training them up in the word of God and releasing them into the world to, in many cases, start other centers and lead or to go out in society and be productive. Amen. (laughs) And when we saw this, one thing that I, I noticed, and we've seen it in other places that have successfully done this, is you don't leave a bunch of guys Tell them to get off drugs and leave them in a room by themselves just doing nothing. Yeah. They'll, go, they'll go crazy. What do you do? Give them work. Yeah. I mean, even if it's work that doesn't seem to be accomplished, give them something to do. Let them build. Let them work with their hands. Why? That's what we were created for. You're replacing one thing with the... Th- because everything wrong, everything bad, every, every addiction, every evil thing that we found ourselves doing is just a perversion of what we were created for. When we, when we seek a high from a substance, we're looking for the satisfaction that we find in God. Right? And there's a satisfaction found in Him that we find from doing what He created us to do. 1 Timothy 5, he says in verse 3, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. So what is he saying? He's saying, you know, the kids and grandkids might say, Oh, good, my mom's getting put on the widow's list. I can use my money for something else. He says, no, if 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 she's got kids, let her kids take care of her as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Jesus said that. He talked to the Pharisees who had said, (laughs) had parents that were like old and couldn't, and you know, going into poverty. And he says to them, you say that this money is dedicated to God, but you don't even take care of your own parents. He said, you're not keeping the commandment, honor your father and mother. So obviously honoring your father and mother is not just being nice to them at Thanksgiving. It's taking care of them if they need it. 
So he says, if you have kids and grandkids, let their kids and grandkids take care of them as much as they can. But then he says this. Now, she who is a widow indeed and has been left alone. So she's got no family taking care of her. Then, here's what it says, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead even while she lives. So if she's just saying, I'm finally free, I do whatever I want, well, that's not good, right? Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Once again, reproach, who is he talking about? He's talking about what the world sees when they look at the church. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I almost don't want to say this out loud. Somebody say, you're a very mean pastor. You shouldn't say things like that. Now, this is not talking about somebody who can't provide. This is somebody who won't provide. See, there's a big difference. I know guys have been trying to get a job for a while and they're doing what they can. This is where the church steps in and helps them. This is somebody who won't provide for his own household. Maybe he left his family, won't provide for him. Maybe he's just doing his own thing and saying, well, the church will take care of him. He says, you're no worse than an unbeliever. Isn't that a strange thing to say, though? Isn't it a strange thing to say that by providing for your family, that would be a difference between a believer and an unbeliever? What it's saying is believers have something in them that unbelievers don't. Believers have the heart of Jesus, have the heart of God. And God takes care. God provides. God is a giver. God is a worker. And it goes on, he says this in verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list. What's this list? They would take care of her, take care of her needs. And oh, I pray that the church never gives up on this. Widows to be put on the list only if she's no less than 60 years old. Now, 60 today is not what 60 was then. 60 was then was pretty old. But says she's not, only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, if she's devoted herself to every good work. Wow. <laughs> does that seem a little harsh? Sometimes it does. You say, well, we should just feed everyone. He's not just doing this so that the money doesn't run out. He's trying to teach people this is how you'll be best satisfied. Listen, what does this lady have? She might not have money. She might not have the ability to go out and get a job, but she does have the ability to take care of strangers. She has the ability to pray and intercede. She has the ability to wash people's feet. She has the ability to take care. Every one of us has something in our hands. And that is why when God saw a little widow, not even living in Israel, but he saw a godly woman who was about to starve to death. He did not send a caravan of goods. He, saw, he sent a prophet with his hand out. Yeah. And the prophet said, give me what you have in your hand. 
And when she did that, God met every other one of her needs. Why? Because that's how God uses us. He doesn't say, are you doing as much as they're doing? Are you doing as much as Josh is doing? Are you doing as much as Audrey's doing? No, he just says, what do you have in your hand? I will bless what you have in your hand. Deuteronomy chapter 28, what does it say? Everything you put your hand to will prosper. Deuteronomy 28 does not say you will just prosper. It says everything you put your hand to will prosper. God is not prospering you by yourself. He's prospering your work. And that's how he prospers you. I'll bless you in the city and I'll bless you where? In the country, in the field. I'll bless your livestock. I'll bless your farms. I'll bless your land. What does this all entail? That you're doing something with the land God gave you. That you're doing something with the animals. If God's blessing your animals, more animals, more work. But that's how he's blessing you. If you're not willing to work, you don't want to be blessed. I'll just tell, I think that sounds weird, but it's true. God will bless whatever you have in your hand. So if you have next to nothing, let me tell you two things. God will take care of your needs, and I believe the church is there to help you as well. But second, no matter how much you have, use whatever's in your hand, and God will bless what's in your hand. Put your hand to something. If, if what you can do is get down on your knees and pray for, pray for people and intercede and make sure your home is open to people who need a place to stay, do it. God will bless you. If she's devoted herself to every good work. And this is the widows that we're going to support for the rest of their life. I think sometimes all of this that we've talked about tonight just sounds too practical to be preached. Right? <laughs> just doesn't sound spiritual enough. But it's very spiritual. There's a reason it showed up in First Thessalonians right after talking about sexual immorality and right before talking about the return of Jesus. Because it's a spiritual matter. It's a matter that we all need to know. I think we all need to put both feet on the ground and resist the culture of the age and choose to embrace what God's original plan for us is. God's original plan is that you'd be blessed in the garden, that you'd expand the garden, you would take chaos and bring order to it. And there's a man who works with stone, takes a wild piece of rock, chips away at it until it fits something or until it has a look about it. That man is a sculptor. That man may be a mason or a stone worker. What he's doing is he's taking something that's wild and he's using it to create order. That's what God does. He spoke into the void and the nothingness and he created something. There's a woman who takes wool. Maybe it's just in a pile. She forms thread out of that wool. She weaves it into something that will clothe her children or something that could be sold. And this woman took something that had no form and she made form. This is being a creator. God created us to do this. It's the reason that God said to, the, to man, I'm going to give you plants that have seeds in them. Do you notice that? Every plant that has seeds in it. Why is that important? Because the man is supposed to take the seeds and do something with it. 
The garden's supposed to expand. The earth needs to be subdued. God, why don't you subdue the earth? You could. Yeah, where's the fun in that? He created us to be like him. We were, we were versions of him walking around, subduing the earth. And I believe that that's when we're satisfied. So guys, if you lose your job, find somebody to help. Find somebody to bless. Find somebody's yard that needs to be taken care of. Find somebody's shovel, uh, driveway that needs to be shoveled. Find somebody to help and somebody to bless. Women, if you find yourself needing that extra bit of money, what do you got in your hand? Use it. God will bless this. A quiet life is not a bad thing. A quiet life is what we were created for, which means... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what God set before me. I'm going to put my hand to work. And I'm going to be an example to outsiders who look in and say, what does a believer look like? God help us if believers are examples of lazy people who skip out on work, find excuses to show up late, don't do their work well. What did the Bible say to slaves? He says, slaves, don't work by, for eye service. Don't work just when your master's looking. But everything you do, do as unto the Lord, and the Lord will repay you. Whatever you do, do it so well, whether anybody will ever notice. And I've used this example before, but I think of Steve Jobs, who I don't think was anywhere near a godly man. You read his biography, he was not a nice guy at all. But one thing he did right, his, his adopted father told him, son, when you make something that's in a box, you make something nobody can see, he said, you paint the inside that no one will ever see. The parts that no one will ever look at, you, you, you do them just as well as the parts everyone else will see because that's how you do a job right. And so when he starts a company, he taught his engineers the inside should look right. If no one ever opens this thing up, do it right. Make it beautiful on the inside, the parts no one will ever see because it's not just about what people will see or people will think about you. It's about what you're doing with your hands. What are you creating? I think that's a godly way to look at things. Because I'm not working for you. I'm not working for my boss. I'm working for the Lord. Yep. And the last point I'll make is this. Because I do think this has to do with how the world looks and sees God in the church. The church is a reflection of God. We are reflections of God. We're reflectors of his glory. But the last point I'd make is this. We're the salt that he sowed into the world. We're the seeds that he planted in the field. Your job is your first mission field. So if you do have a job that you show up at, you're speaking in a people's lives and you are preaching a message that they may never hear in a church building, but they're seeing it in you. Show them what God looks like. Show them what a believer looks like. Show them the righteousness of God lived out in a life. And they'll glorify God. And they may slander you. That's what Peter said. They may slander you, make stories up. Don't give them anything real. Live your life as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your might. And God will bless the work of your hands. I hope that tonight, because <laughs> I, sw- I, I made a promise to myself and to God and to you that anytime we take on a book, we're not going to skip through it. We'll go through it. If we're going through a book, now sometimes we go through a theme and we'll skip. 
But if we're going through a book, we'll go through it verse by verse. I know that this subject's, once again, not the shout, run around the church kind of subject. But I believe it's spiritual nonetheless. I believe it's godly. And I believe that we as believers should help one another. And as, as the book of Hebrews says, uh, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Encourage one another even more as we see the day approaching. I, I just want to leave you with that thought. Whatever your hand finds to do, as it says in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. God will put something in front of your hands, do it. And do it as unto the Lord. Do it with all your might and watch God bless the work of your hands. Let's stand up today.